This is the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time for the Steak for Breakfast Podcast. It's Wednesday, February 22nd, 2023, and this is the People's Podcast. This is Steak for Breakfast. Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior! America! Steak. For breakfast! So stand by. This episode of the podcast is brought to you, as always, by Man Rubs. Rubs, barbecue tools, blow torches, t-shirts, coffee cups, and all-around barbecue-related gear for you to make barbecue great again. can be found at manrubs.com and on Instagram, manrubs. Use the code STEAK15 for 15% off. The Pillow King of Minnesota and the apparatus known as the MyPillow family always got big, big savings going on down at MyPillow, whether it's the MyPillow version 2.0, the Air Lindell's MySlippers, or Giza Dream Everything. When you enter promo code STEAK at checkout, you're going to experience massive savings. If you're more of a morning person, they've launched my coffee. It's available in the bean, the bag, and the pod. You enter promo code STEAK here, you're getting 25% off your total order, 50% off when you make it a monthly subscription. MyPillow.com forward slash steak if you want the pillows. MyStore.com forward slash steak if you're more into the coffee. Or you can always talk to a qualified pillow representative, 1-800-658-8045. The top tier of ear gear and the world's most technologically advanced in-studio recording equipment specializing in headphones can only be found at Odyssey. Whether you're gaming, potting, dropping a special edition of the podcast, get those ear needs taken care of and done upright. Odyssey.com is the website. You can find them on Instagram and Facebook as well. Friends, don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Steak for Podcast Breakfast. There you'll find a link tree that'll take you to all our social medias, the website, our newest Substack, Telegram channel, and more. On that note, to everyone joining us today from the Republican High Command, Instagram, Discord, and now via our verified accounts on Twitter, Getter, and True Social, welcome, Wednesday edition, Steak for Breakfast podcast, one-on-one special with Mr. Darren Beatty. I'm Roan, Noah's here. Yo. Guys, we've got a great one lined up for you. Supposed to be on the Tuesday edition of the show, interview went so long, we wanted to give you guys a little treat, so let's jump right into it, Mr. Darren J. Beatty. Former White House official and the man behind Revolver News. In case you didn't know, he's a little bit of a Play-Doh enjoyer as well. Mr. Darren Beatty, thanks for joining us on Steak for Breakfast. So great to be back with you guys. Thank you. It's been way too long, sir. How's everything going with you? Things are going great. Busy as always. Involved in a lot of things. Um, always working around the clock to bring the public the very best in news and investigative reporting and in commentary. Uh, we've had some really significant pieces, uh, analytical pieces out of Revolver, I think, within the past month and a half, two months or so. So I'm always thinking of new new things that uh, sort of capture the most relevant developments in our country and our society. And, uh, you know, that's what occupies most of my days. Yeah, it seems like anybody that does the news, that's pretty much it. And you've mastered a uh, amazing way to deliver it to 
the masses, sir. As you know, let's just be honest. Revolver.news is pretty much all but replaced outlets like, let's just say, the Drudge Report from maybe half decade ago, where I used to go to that several times a day. It seemed like it was, you know, maybe not extremely conservative, but at least gave you a lot of the news that, that people in conservative politics would be interested in, and then commentary that was kind of at least fair if you wanted to get both sides of the argument. To where now you and uh, Revolver News is, is pretty much cranking out all of the things everyone needs to stay in the know. What was part of the method- methodology that went into, as you saw a decline in the overall legacy media, how the reporting was, the blurry lines right now to where it doesn't matter what channel you turn on or what outlet you listen to, you're trying to figure out if it's a Democrat or a journalist and that's pretty much it. Uh, to kind of be able to deliver the news to people that's really impactful to them. Well, that's a good question, you know, about whether we've replaced Drudge, you know, Drudge has declined in so many significant ways. I mean, principally, their whole kind of implicit editorial perspective has changed dramatically um, over the past several years, which provided an opening for something like Revolver News, which was originally known as kind of an aggregation website, which it still is, but it's expanded into so many other things, but as for replaced, you know, we're just getting started and, you know, people are, people are creatures of habit, even, you know, if they're old time, uh, you know, drudge readers and I'll admit, you know, I still check out what drudge is doing just because sometimes they're, you know, interesting oddball stories that he still gets, notwithstanding just the kind of, uh you know toilet bowl uh direction of the kind of broader editorial perspective on covid and you know politics and things like that but i think a lot of people are just habitual users of uh drudge report and people don't like to change their habits and so in one way it's sort of frustrating but really it's actually very encouraging because it means we're you know we're getting millions and millions of views um, per month, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, up to 10 million per month, but there's so much more out there. And just to give the perspective of what the landscape is like to jump from drudge to another media enterprise, consider something like daily, daily wire. They've got a million paying subscribers. Now, you know, revolver is doing well. We're nowhere close to a million yet. You know, we're only two years old, but we're we're getting closer and closer and the thing is is yeah i mean we do have a very different perspective in some ways from daily wire um you know daily wire is very much a kind of neoconservative operation run by ben shapiro and you know people with some justification can say it's controlled opposition and this or that but the reality is that at the retail level of the media consumer these differences are not as apparent as we might think. And just to illustrate this point, consider Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, right? People like us who are kind of saturated in in news and ideology and political perspectives and stuff, we might say there could be no more crystallized contrast in the kind of perspectives on the right between Tucker Carlson, who's sort of a leading nationalist, populist, sort of realignment type voice, 
and Sean Hannity, who represents sort of like the old era stuff, but with lip service to some new developments that he can't uh, avoid, but giving some concessions to. But in reality, at the consumer level, most of the people who are watching Tuck, Tucker Carlson go on to watch Sean Hannity and they don't appreciate any kind of difference. They're just like, oh, this is next in line. They're both good, you know? Um, and that's just the reality at the retail level. And so I think there's so many people who are, you know, habitual consumers of Daily Wire and they, you know, they don't know any better. They haven't heard of Revolver News yet or people who are, you know, still reading Breitbart. And, you know, there are still some good people at Breitbart. You know, Alan Bakari is one of the best tech reporters out there. There's yeah. some other good ones, but it's nowhere near the powerhouse that it was under Steve Bannon's tutelage back when it really mattered, when meaningful things were happening in the political sphere and Breitbart was at front and center of that. It's nowhere near that. But again, it has this kind of status of people habitually going there. How And Breitbart's, you know, 50 million views per month. How many people looking at Breitbart are future super fans of Revolver, but they just haven't heard it yet? So um, there's, there's so much more upside out there, um, which is, you know, very exciting because it's all about just reaching these people. It's all about distribution. It's all about showing people, hey, this is this is what's out there. And once they once they see it, they see one or two articles, they see the difference, they see the quality, and they're hooked. So um, there's a lot more work to be done in terms of just getting the word out there that there's the new kid on the block, and it's you know the hottest thing in uh, in media right now, certainly on the right, but maybe even even generally in, in terms of what we're what we're trying to do. Yeah, when you look at some of your guys analysis pieces, I think you would uh, give credit to that argument right there. And, and I agree with you over the course of well, basically, since President Trump got into the, you know, dominated the news cycle back in 2015, there was such a difference between the way something new could be marketed, how a brand could be presented. And now the way anything on the right, even like the diet right, uh, has been so demonized to where like, you know, big techs putting the crosshairs on Fox News now is like the end all because they're the biggest threat to de democracy and, you know, conservative media. When we certainly know there's not, there's, there's a lot more nationalist populist views out there who have hard hitting points that are the actual matters and not just some of like the boomer sweat inducing things that you get on Fox News sometimes from people, you know, like Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram. But the fact of the matter is, is that it used to be a lot easier before big tech came in there and really started repressing conservative voices to be able to get a spot at the table. Because, you know, back, let's say 2015, 2016 on places like Facebook or or other Instagram, places that were just getting really huge in regards to how media is more spread and would bring people to like the bigger entity that is like a place like Revolver News. All you would have to do is be like, we're all in for Trump 2016 and boom, next thing you know, you'd have tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of followers joining on. And now it's just like, listen, it doesn't matter how good you're reporting. If people aren't helping and sharing and spreading the good word while you continue to put in like tireless hours, all for sometimes very little results at the end of the day, you're just going to get washed up into the next big shiny thing because of how the news cycle has been for the past, you know, seven years. It's true. Yeah. Distribution is a big, big issue. And, you know, it's 
It's for a reason. You know, it's not like any other business. News is a business that has to do with influence on a very deep level. I mean, you could even go so far as to say that news and the narratives that contextualize the news um, don't simply influence people. It fundamentally shapes and even creates their sense of reality. Um, you know, the name media itself, it's, um, you know, it's it's linked with words like um, medium, in between. It's something that is a layer in between what is happening and people's understanding of what is happening. There's always going to be some kind of layer, but it's just a question of, you know, who who has influence over it, who controls it, who shapes this intermediate layer that determines people's understanding, not only of how to interpret things, but what things are relevant enough to be on one's radar in the first place, which is sometimes and often even more important. So given the stakes involved, um, there's, you know, it's no mystery why the regime has uh, gone to great lengths in order to um, make the distribution issue very difficult for people trying to get out message. But there, you know, there's still ways to do it. You know, there, there's always a way around. It's just an additional layer of headache for those who happen to be um, in the news business. And it's, you know, it's the price you have to pay for being in a very um, high stakes enterprise. Yeah, a lot of people aren't willing to stick to their actual convictions either or what is por a portion of their original message either. All for, okay, maybe if I just like cater to the neocon right, the moderate right, maybe the independents a little bit more, my voice will get out there. People will be like, eh, you know, this guy's a Republican, but he's kind of reasonable or he's a conservative but you know he's actually kind of got like a middle ground message and that's where you know i think a lot of the things that we all try to do here which is honestly report the news provide commentary give analysis and be fair and truthful that you know a lot of people in the well at least the legacy media but some of the people that are up and coming they kind of miss you know they'd rather go for the drive-by headline to get clicks and subscriptions when you know the way I was raised, and it sounds like it was the same way for you, Darren, you know, telling the truth is the best way to do it. And if you hold out long enough, you're eventually going to uh, get there. So I think that's kind of, you know, where you're at with, with Revolver. It's definitely growing and exploding in growth. And the job you do there is probably uncomparable to, I would say, 99% of the others that are out there doing it. And we just want to give you a little kudos to that as we're getting started here. So you had a portion of uh, the January 6th report that just came out. You wrote a introduction commentary piece on, on pretty much all of it, but a little bit more of a backstory and because it's been a while since you've been on. I know a lot of our listenership definitely probably sees you on War Room or when you jump on with Tucker Carlson and other places that you've been as well, you know, whether you're putting out your, the pieces that you're writing and stuff like that. You've kind of been on this since day one. You, you broke a lot of the news that kind of started to deconstruct it, the mainstream and the left's narrative on what January 6th was, how it kind of developed, uh, what everybody might be accustomed to thinking it is now. And now that the report's out, what can you say as we're moving forward here? I, we are going to get into the developing news that's happened over the last couple of days, but just up until that point, what can you say? How has this narrative changed, and what are we looking at in regards to the overallity of it? Well, you know, <laughs> the January 6th report, the official public document, has been published by various um, 
by various publishing houses, usually with a comment uh, commentary by some alleged expert. And there's one publishing house that took the the interesting risk of commissioning an introduction by someone who wasn't simply going to parrot the regime and regime media approved line. And that's Sky House Publishing, which is a subsidiary of Simon and Schuster. And they reached out to me and to say, hey, um, people deserve the real story here um, on January 6th, especially in light of this committee report. Would you do an introduction that gives sort of the full story that deconstructs the committee itself and that presents the uh, version of events that has been come to be known as the Fed Surrection. And that's what I did. And there is this version available now at Amazon, the Skyhorse version of the January 6th committee report with an introduction by Darren Beatty. And in that, it's a fairly extensive introduction. It can be like a one-stop shop. Of course, the full story, you have to go to Revolver News where there's the video and everything like that. But for the kind of quick and dirty, comprehensive summary of things. This is really um, a kind of a, a powerful statement. The first half of it, I go into the committee itself, uh, which is a total joke. It, it was never set up to be a neutral fact-finding vehicle Agreed. for uncovering what happened January 6th. And you know, just as an example of that, the chair of that committee, uh, Benny Thompson, um, he sued Trump in his personal capacity before this committee even existed. He sued Trump for January 6th. And the lawsuit adduced a theory of the case in which Trump was um, responsible for incitement. And this happens to be the very theory that was reproduced almost identically in the findings of the January 6th committee that Benny Thompson later came to chair. Now, if we weren't in such a third world trash heap of a country, there would be a concept called conflict of interest in which if you're somebody who sued Trump personally, and that lawsuit already has a theory of the case of January 6th, you probably shouldn't be chairing a committee that's ostensibly dedicated to investigating January 6th afresh and in a disinterested, objective fashion. Now, they call it a bipartisan committee, which is true technically, but it's even, you know, worse than just being the Democrats, because what it is, is Democrats who hate Trump and Republicans, a handful of Republicans who hate Trump even more than the Democrats. And I think we know some of their names. One is Liz Cheney, the um, kind of gender ambiguous scion of one of the worst war criminals in American history. And there's Adam Kinsinger, who's known as a crybaby Kinsinger, a man who some say spends more time crawling around on all fours than he does walking on two feet. And this is, you know, this was never set up to be a, a disinterested committee. So we deal with that in the first part of the introduction. The second part is where the real juicy stuff comes in, where the real 
kind of dark stuff comes in where the stuff that's a little bit difficult to digest for some people who still want to maintain the fiction that we live in a uh, a free society because it touches upon the critical questions, the questions that the January 6th committee was set up specifically to obfuscate and deflect from. It touches on the questions that get to the beating heart of what really happened on January 6th and which show, I think, with overwhelming weight of evidence and reasoning, January 6th was not the insurrection that Joe Biden says it was. It was rather a Fedsurrection. And what I mean by that was not that everybody there was a card-carrying member of the FBI or whatever. What I mean by that is that had it not been for a handful of key critical actors, each playing a key and critical role complementary to that of the other actors, the preconditions would not have been set for that rally to turn into a riot. And furthermore, overwhelming weight of the evidence suggests that these critical actors have some type of relationship with the federal government and that certainly they are being protected by the federal government for some reason, which really defies innocent explanation. And of course, the most famous and perhaps infamous of these critical actors I'm alluding to is Ray Epps. But there are others who are even more mysterious and perhaps even more egregious. Um, and unlike Epps, remain unidentified to this day. Shadow figures who played a key role Nobody knows in the public knows who they are, and the government hasn't even acknowledged their existence, let alone made any um, publicly known effort to identify these people. So it really is a fascinating and dark story that ultimately leads to the very nature of the type of society in which we live and the type of government that we have. No, I mean, uh, that pretty much unpacks it for our listenership and all the way up to, you know, Ray Epps and friends who, uh, like you said, a lot of them are people who we still don't know. The government knows federal law enforcement knows there's probably some private citizens who know as well, but, uh, this is something that we're going to be touching on uh, a little bit more with you in just a sec. But first we're going to hear from one of our partners. You know how you've gotten that chewy, hard, disappointing jerky from the gas station. You got to try some of this jerky. We just got from farmer bills. It's soft and tender because it's cured and air dried instead of dehydrated like that other junk. Ingredient conscious, there's no sugar, no soy, or other additives, just beef, salt, and spices. Working on those gains, it's protein on the go with a very respectable 32 grams of protein per two ounces. That's twice the amount of that other jerky. So if you like to support small business and you like your food source in the USA, order some Farmer Bills with the code STEAK for an extra five bucks off. Buy a 12-pack, you can get free shipping. The only thing better than this tender jerky is supporting an American-made company that shares your values. Get yourself some Farmer Bills traditionally air-dried beef jerky today. And we're back now with Dr. Darren Beatty, the man behind Revolver News. We're talking January 6th here on Steak for Breakfast. So here's one of the things that has always boggled my mind when it talks about the Fedsurrection narrative, which we 100% believe have provided on our show from day one. It was just too perfect for it not to be. And then all of the investigative journalism, the, the uncovering that people like yourself, Julie Kelly, others involved who've decided to really take this on uh, at risk to their own personal safety, I feel in a lot of parts, 
you know, and it's just one of those things where, Darren, here's a question that I haven't heard anybody ask yet. For our government, who's so well known for, pardon my language, fucking everything up, Ooh. how do they pull off something so perfect like what happened on January 6th? Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by pulling it off perfectly. I mean, the fact that the fact that we're talking about this, the fact that, you know, Revolver has covered all of this and exposed it, and that really, I would say, given how polarized the country is, there's half people who don't know, don't care. And, you know, if it were proven that it would, you know, or a Fed surrection, they would say, good, you know, the federal government should be trying to entrap and throw Trump supporters in jail. But for the half of the country that sort of um, adjacent to, you know, the right, um, you know, maybe not even necessarily Trump supporters, but kind of sympathetic to it, in, in, to the message in some way. Um, at the very least, there's a deep skepticism as to the official story of it. So I, I think for that reason, we can't say that they, they did a great job. I mean, we, look, it, you know, just to contextualize what it means to do a great job, in, in some ways it's such a sloppy job, but they don't really need to do a great job because of how the media functions. Like, think about it. Think about just a thought exercise. And again, I know it, it's kind of stale and even to the point of just being kind of lame and low IQ to even talk about, you know, Epstein these days. But there's, But that's kind of the point. Like we saw something that was manifestly some type of conspiracy at the highest level for this guy to just die, you know, in, in prison like that. Right. And you would think that, okay, this is a big fuck up. People saw this, you know, this is, you know, there the, he's caught. We've got him. We, we, we see something that's, but no. And in fact, it's funny. It's not, it's not simply that, you know, in this case that people think, oh, there's nothing to it. People think, oh, yeah, he, you know, there's there's something weird there, but it becomes this kind of joke that doesn't really go anywhere. And and, so, and there's so many other instances of like things that it ordinarily is someone say, oh, if people saw that they would do something, you know, and we don't need to get into each example because some are very controversial. But there, you know, there are other events, maybe terrorist events that at the very least a full and detailed and honest accounting of the publicly available information on it contradicts core features of the public story about these about these events and yet it never makes a difference it never really becomes initiated into public discourse so i think uh, in in that sense the the government doesn't really need to do an excellent job. And in this case, you had someone like Ray Epps, who, again, you know, Ray Epps was, was a, you know, he's, he came off as a professional. He was very, very composed. He was very um, uh, impressive in terms of his ability to manage and direct a crowd. But where he failed was he's an old timer. Yeah. He's an old timer and just... To be speculative for for a bit, assuming that he's the sort of person who's been in this sort of gray world for a long time since his retirement from the Marines, just just for sake of speculation, 
His software, his mental software may not have been updated to the reality that recording devices are everywhere and that they mean something. He's someone who kind of slipped up and provided one of the smoking guns of the Fed's erection because he wasn't really attuned to the fact that all of these recording devices around there mean something and it's going to look bad if he's on camera doing all of this stuff, you know, that, that there's some kind of permanence in there. There there's, there's in fact one exchange. It's really funny. One of the individuals who took a lot of the iconic footage of apps. So we actually uh, interviewed him. His name is Tim Gionad, something like that. He's good. goes by baked Alaska. He's the person who said fed fed this kind of thing. He was a live streamer. He had this this streaming device where you know people used to walk around and and their uh, fans could do super chats that would then kind of play on the speakers in public and things like this. And Epps was absolutely baffled by this. He he talked about. It. He said, "You know what's the deal with your little machine there talking?" <laughs> it's like he, he didn't understand the significance of being on a live stream or what that meant, or the fact that you know it's like it's just kind of representative of this disconnect between the environment that he's in and the attendant um, uh, kind of opsec considerations. Uh, uh, and, and he otherwise did a great job. So, you know, and, and for the pipe bomb thing, that was also kind of, you know, very sloppy. That's the other smoking gun. And, you know, they weren't counting on anyone to talk about this. And that's the, that's the amazing thing is that, you know, usually a lot of people in most positions, it's like they could like what they do, but they're like, okay, if I wasn't here, there'd be somebody else doing this exact same thing, blah, blah, blah. But in this case, you know, it's not just, you know, maybe it's patting myself on the back a little bit, but it also happened to be true. If it weren't for Revolver's reporting, this narrative of the Fed surrection probably would not have gained any steam. They they simply were not counting on anyone to pursue this narrative because there were no institutions that had a track record of doing anything remotely like this. In fact, before revolvers on the scene covering this, again, you know, people on the right are not stupid. They have good instincts as to when they're being, you know, lied to and manipulated, but most people didn't know how to express this. And so it was expressed in terms available uh, to them. It, it, like, oh, there's something fishy about J6. I think it was Antifa. That was the dominant narrative among kind of skeptics for a long time. And the regime and the regime media didn't seem to care that much about it. It was only when Revolver came up said, maybe Antifa isn't really what it was. Maybe it was a Fed's erection. Maybe this was actually Feds doing it just the same way that they've been manipulating and insinuating themselves into the political process for decades now, going way back to, you know, before you know, the time of MLK. Yeah. yeah. And it was only then that the media freaked out. I mean, it was it was a meltdown of proportions like um, I hadn't seen since, you know, some of the early Trump days when the media was freaking out about Trump. 
And so it was clearly hit a nerve and there was clearly a meaningful difference from the regime's perspective between sort of pointing and sputtering about, you know, maybe it was Antifa and saying, hey, this was a Fed surrection. There was a real meaningful difference there. And I guess with some justification, um, the you know, the feds weren't really anticipating that any outlet would be set up to understand the importance of that narrative and to be able to pursue it in such excruciating and compelling detail. You know, it's it's funny when, when all of that stuff came out and the narrative kind of switched to which was the broader one, like you began to describe like things like maybe Antifa or, or, or just some crazies who were running around and kind of put the crosshairs on the federal government and federal law enforcement. It seems like they couldn't ramp up a response fast enough in the form of the January 6th committee, which would be like an extremely large produced public counter to whatever actual journalists were reporting with facts. In addition, it seemed like the Justice Department only wanted to ramp up easy slam dunk convictions or dropping like the biggest charges and getting smaller convictions on plea deals with people just to say, listen, our narrative is, is that this was like a, a Trump led insurrection and, and that's all it can be. And look, we've already got like five people who have, you know, already admitted that they're, they're, they're accepting their fate here. So, so how can what other people report be wrong? Which we all know is definitely not the case. You know, they'll they'll run with a headline in like the New York Times that says like this guy in the Proud Boys, you know, who was charged with insurrection, really accepted a plea deal for like misdemeanor trespassing. But a lot of people can't read was charged with insurrection or, you know, was charged with violently attacking a police officer before they actually get to like what the guy was actually charged with, what actually a judge in a very awful court of public opinion and uh you know the legal process how it is in washington tc is kind of railroading some of these guys and it brings you all the way up to like where we are now we saw kevin mccarthy over the weekend uh decided to turn over all of the unreleased footage from january 6th or or the largest portion of it to the tucker carlson team over there based on what you've done so far darren and all the work that you've put in all these hours how optimistic are you that we're going to be able to get to uh legitimate bottom of this now that it seems like the wheels are turning basically on, on the argument that you've presented side. Um, are you asking specifically about the footage? Well, what the footage will eventually lead to, is it going to actually do more, uh, do a better job of showing the public? Like, listen, every time somebody talks about January 6th on any media outlet, all they do is show a picture of people pushing up against like a bike rack up against some cops. And that's what they basically want everybody to think January 6th is, or people sitting in the uh, house chamber and things like that. But now that we're going to get like a more totality, a more all encompassing version of what exactly happened start to finish on that day. Are you optimistic that we'll be able to get to uh, a better reasoning on like what the actual narrative is, the one that you've been working on for so long? Well, it's a complicated thing. I, I think it's a tremendous thing that um, we have the footage, or at least Tucker Carlson has the footage, but I think it's going to be you know, available um, in some way more more broadly um so that's definitely a positive thing it's better than not having that my concern is there's so much of this footage that i don't want this to amount to a kind of um 
kind of needle in a haystack consolation prize whereby Kevin McCarthy can offer these mountains of footage that could take a lot of time to go through. Yeah. And just to get people busily distracted and going through hours and hours and hours and maybe not finding anything. And that's sort of, that's the end of the political capital. That's your consolation prize. Thanks for, you know, because McCarthy has to give up something. He has to give something. That's just the conditions of him being there. So I'm worried that there's some sense that, okay, this won't make a difference here. You throw him a bone and it'll keep him distracted for months and months and months. And that'll be the end of it. And the other question is like, what do we expect to find in this footage? Now, there's always the possibility that there's something absolutely explosive that will change everything. But um, maybe it's more likely that it, if there is anything there, it'll be along the lines of stuff that we already have. You know, we already have footage of Capitol Police opening up the doors to people. We already have footage of the Capitol Police like flash bombing the crowd unnecessarily in order to aggravate them. We already have footage of the Capitol Police, you know, beating down on people like the Boylan woman who died. Yeah. We already have all of that stuff. And and that, you know, and yet we still like in the mainstream media, all you see is, you know, the kind type of footage like you described. And so like, it seems to me that maybe at best we're going to get that same type of footage, which, you know, for the full sake of the public record is important. But is that going to really be a game changer on the narrative level? Probably not, because we already have that material. And so that's why my kind of posture toward these things and toward sort of these House committees more generally is sometimes the broadness sometimes the sheer amount of the data dump can work against you sometimes it's much better to be very narrow very targeted and very specific in, in especially when you're operating with limited political capital which which is the case right now and that's why i've always been saying all else equal great more footage the better but focus should be I would say on the DNC surveillance footage of the pipe bomber. Yeah. Yeah. I think getting the chain of custody of that footage and the full raw and unedited footage of that DNC pipe bomber uh footage that the FBI released that Revolver News proved was both censored and artificially tampered with by the FBI such as to make it virtually impossible to identify the person. I think I would rather have the full raw unedited DNC surveillance footage plus the chain of custody than the how many thousands of hours that that McCarthy gave up. So, but again, it maybe doesn't have to be an either or, but ultimately there's by necessity an element of prioritization and an element of opportunity cost of time. And um, I, I hope that in that respect, the release of all of these hours is, um, is going to be worth it. And 
if it's not worth it, it's it's you know it's not for lack of having highly skilled people looking at it. You know the the team, at least I can say for you know Tucker's team is is the best that there is. And if there's something there, they're going to get it and they're going to they're going to report on it in the most compelling way. I'm just worried that um, maybe there's some kind of understanding on McCarthy's part that yeah, this is more of a wild goose chase. And again, like even, even if there, there are some things in there, like, you know, oh, here they opened the doors here or this or that, we already have that kind of stuff. Right. And, and so I just don't see more of the same in that respect. I could see it reinforcing, you know, people's understandings who are already skeptical, but I don't see it making any, um, kind of quantum advancements at the narrative level in the way that I suspect pursuing the pipe bomb case could could uh, achieve. No, for as much work as, as you've done and have, has a lot of people have done to kind of bring this all to the forefront in, in the most, you know, uncovered way possible, there is still a lot more work ahead. You know it. I could hear it in your voice as you kind of describe the narrative. I think we're kind of maybe not even at a halfway point to getting to like reasonable conclusions for a lot of how January 6th was able to unfold, uh, regardless of the receipts we already got. But we, we, we could only hope that, you, you know, we know that you're going to stay strong and continue to do this. To uh, th- This has become a big passion of yours, and I do feel like at some point we are going to get to the overall bottom of this. And uh, the work you've done is just incomparable. We're really appreciative. And uh, when we have conversations like this with you, Darren, it's, uh, you know, really great for our listenership to kind of hear a lot of those things that they might miss j- just in the drive-by media. Last thing I wanted to touch with you on, we had President's Day yesterday. Uh, the presidential campaign for 24 is kicking off. You saw a tale of two different presidencies yesterday, the 45th president and the 46th president. Just by outside looking in as someone who, you know, reports on the news, how, how do you feel the direction of the country is right now based off of what you saw yesterday? You had somebody like Joe Biden who's stumping in Ukraine and, and going over to Poland saying, you know, World War III is not that bad and, and don't you forget about it. And you have somebody like Donald Trump who's preparing to uh, – make a, a trip to the Rust Belt, which which everybody who really understands politics knows that's pretty much the only way we're getting back to the White House here is he's set to go to Ohio uh, a little bit later this week. Well, I mean, I think it offers a compelling, a compelling contrast um, in a lot of ways. The whole Biden thing is very unfortunate. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think he's really the driving or motivating force behind um, these kind of escalatory gestures. Um, I think there's probably a dynamic whereby the regime forces have some kind of leverage on him. And I'm not even talking about like, you know, blackmail or something like that. It's just that he could be removed if the regime wants him gone. And maybe that explains some of the you know, the stuff about the classified documents and, you know, some of the Hunter stuff, why that's being kept alive. It's not kept alive because people, you know, unfortunately, as much as I would like to say, oh, you know, the right wing media is powerful to keep this alive. It has nothing to do with us. This is a internal issue within the regime uh, and perhaps a kind of display of the leverage that the regime has should you know, Biden not um, maybe more aggressively approach the um, Ukraine and, and Russia 
situation. Um, I think people in, you know, in his State Department um, have very uh, insidious motives in that regard, particularly Victoria Newland. Yes. And I suspect there are people like that who have far more influence than we imagine and that um, Biden's kind of being taken along on a leash, metaphorically speaking. Maybe figuratively speaking, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, Darren, do you think a lot of people are still uh, falling into the trap of underestimating President Trump as he's getting ready to kick off his campaign here and w- with, with some soft launches of uh, campaign events? Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I think he is the he's the front runner and there's no question about it. Um, you know, the recent polls suggest it, you yeah. know, common sense analysis of the kind of political lay of the land suggests it and he's just getting started so if trump wants the nomination he'll get the nomination obviously he he wants it because he's he's running um so i i think it's really as as simple as that and i think he's probably he's done a good job at sort of staking out you know a sound america first position on foreign policy i think the ohio visit is going to be an inflection point that kicks the campaign into a higher gear yeah um they're they're doing well they're just not running on all cylinders yet the one piece of advice that I advocated fairly aggressively in my own recent interview with Trump. It's incredible. It's got over 7 million views on Rumble. So I encourage everybody, if you haven't seen that, it is the most extensive and candid discussion Trump has ever had on the issue of the deep state, the criminality of the national security state, on the Fed surrection, naming names, including Ray Epps, on absolutely no holds barred mockery and humiliation of Mitch McConnell, Frank Luntz, and many others, and with some unexpected uh celebrity gossip on people like uh his old friend michael jackson (laughs) we talked about so it's got it's got something for everyone um it's gotten a a lot of i'm very proud that it's you know people are saying wow this is maybe the best interview that he's ever done it's just a phone interview it's like listening in on a private conversation we have very good rapport and that's that's reflected in the interview. And I think that's why it's gotten so many views, but 7 million views. That's, that's more than most, you know, Fox news shows we get. It's actually pretty, pretty, uh, pretty incredible. But we start, when we start out the uh, interview, I tell him, you got to go on Twitter. You got to go on Twitter. And the reason you have to go on Twitter, you in this case being, being president Trump, is that unlike in 2016, where he brilliantly took uh, free media to his maximum advantage, there is a pretty much a de facto media blackout on, on Trump now that extends even into Fox News to a large degree. Agreed. And his one secret weapon, the one ace that he has to circumvent this blackout is he has his Twitter account with 
50, 60, maybe even more. I don't know exactly how many followers he has. It's a lot. It's over 50 million. And, you know, he's established himself as probably the greatest, <laughs> the greatest tweeter of all time. Yes. And he has an account just sitting there waiting for him, <laughs> waiting for him to take the throne on Twitter. And, you know, it would make sense in any context now with the media blacking him out, that could be a game changer. So I think that's sort of that, you know, um, it's simply necessary. It has to happen and therefore it will happen. It's just a matter of when and in what form maybe certain contractual, um, uh obligations will mean that he'll have to be on twitter uh through a campaign account and maybe not his other account you know there there could be various various forms of it but one way or another his presence uh his direct presence on twitter is something that uh will mark another inflection point in the campaign so given how well he's doing already in the polls it's amazing because the campaign is nowhere near operating on all cylinders no. yet. You know, we're they're just beginning and they don't need to operate on all cylinders because we're far enough out. And, you know, people are still waiting to see, you know, what's going to happen with DeSantis. Is he going to run? Is he not? You know, what's the deal there? You know, it's still very early on in the game. And then you have all these just come this complete, you know, trash entering people like Nikki Haley. Got to love her. <laughs> people like people like John Bolton and maybe even Mike Pompeo. Yep. Who, you know, you can't say this about a lot of people, but Pompeo actually looked a lot better when he was 200 pounds heavier. Yeah. Yeah, he does kind of look like a deflated balloon right now. Not he the looks ones like an old sick dog. <laughs> Not the ones that flew <laughs> over our country, but uh, he was the spy balloon. He could have been, and, and you know, you 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 didn't even mention the the amazing slate of governors who might be looking to get in there. People like Chris Sununu and Asa Hutchinson, and God forbid, uh, Larry Hogan. I mean, he he Donald Trump already calls him pig face, so he's got a nickname yeah. before we even. Get, Final form Trump will be something uh, that we definitely don't deserve. A lot in the same ways. Our listenership probably didn't deserve how awesome this interview is, Darren, but this is the interview that they needed. So what I want to <laughs> do is be able to direct everyone to not only listen to your amazing interview that came out over the holidays with President Trump, which I, my biggest takeaway from it, when I listened to it, honestly, and, and broke it down, I probably listened to it at least three times. It wasn't former coworkers. It wasn't a man who served under the 45th president of the United States that as soon as that interview got to like a baseline of where this was like two friends who really respected each other. I was like, man, this, and then it got into like the Michael Jackson stuff. I was like, this is awesome. Like, <laughs> How could you start off talking about foreign policy and Joe Biden and end about commentary on Michael Jackson? Like you can't get that anywhere else. <laughs> where can our listenership find revolver news? Where can they find you on social media? We'll live link everything. And I'll throw the uh, interview uh, link in the show description today, sir. Fantastic. Yep. Revolver.news. Read it, share it with friends and family. We we're, we're beginning and we need to uh, become very competitive with Daily Wire and others. So we're just getting started. In order to do that, we need people to spread the word and share it with people uh, who might be interested in, in Revolver.news. I'm on Twitter at Darren J. Beattie. 
And I would suggest people want kind of the quick, the dirty, but the comprehensive account of January 6th in written form. One great way to do that is to get the Skyhorse version of the January 6th committee report with an introduction by me. Skyhorse took a little bit of a risk by, you know, having me write the introduction rather than some, you know, yet another kind of establishment hack. So I think, you know, risks like this should should be rewarded uh, to some degree. So check that out, the Skyhorse version. And yeah, that's that's all I got for now. We'll link the book in there. And while you can think of other stuff or, or work on other stuff in the future, Darren, you're always welcome here on Steak for Breakfast. This is the man behind Revolver News, one of our great friends. So good to sit back down with him. Mr. Darren J. Beatty, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you, guys. Always good catching up with uh, brilliant journalists, great investigative reporter, and uh, amazing friend of the show. What do you think, Noah? We need him to come back more often. I think now that he's got a schedule or that might be happening on a more frequent basis. Guys, we want to thank everybody who came out and listened to our special edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast today, a one-on-one interview with none other than Dr. Darren J. Beatty. We'll be back on Friday, and we're going to have on Dr. Peter McCullough and Cash Patel. On behalf of the pod team, I'm Roan. Noah? Later. Thanks for listening, and take care.